the Clinton Institute at University College Dublin. This is America Unfiltered with me, Liam Kennedy. A fresh, raw look at American politics, foreign policy and media that strips away all the usual filters we apply to our discussion on America or are applied for us. But what do we mean by unfiltered? And what do we hope to achieve with this podcast? To help me unpack all of that, I asked my good friend Scott Lucas to join me on this inaugural episode. Scott is Professor of International Politics and American Studies at the University of Birmingham and the founder and editor of EA Worldview, a leading source of daily analysis and insight on American foreign policy as well as Middle Eastern and European affairs. He also happens to be American, so a perfect candidate for our initial conversation on American Unfiltered. I've kind of lived my life with a lot of American filters. Mm. Um, and so I was kind of thinking about it, you know, because at one level, what you're talking about is absolutely right, that we give people this place here where they can come in and they can talk about American politics or society or the economy or uh, American or foreign culture. policy, what America's doing in the world, what America's doing to the world. Foreign policy. Yeah, and you, you, as it were, you strip away those filters where we're actually talking about the reality of what happens. In other words, when the rubber meets the road, yeah. what are you talking about with immigration or healthcare or the economy? Mm-hmm. But that, that pushed me to think, well, what, what do I mean by those filters? And I guess, you know, everything with me is, it's not being an academic, it's just that you, you see your country from where you sit or where you stand. Mm-hmm. And the big filter for me was, that growing up in the States, and I was born in 62, and even after I came in here in the 80s, you don't completely leave your country behind, is that we're number one. You know, we're number, we're, we are the best. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't have many chants at our sporting events. We're not like these, uh, these learned folks on the football terraces here in the UK or across Europe. Uh, but by golly, we, we got that one chant, which is we're number one, we're number one, we're mm-hmm. number one. Or when we go to the Olympics, USA, USA. And that isn't just a chant. When I grew up, I thought how lucky, how privileged I was to be born an American. I Certainly, I, I didn't want to be born a Soviet because that was being a communist where they took children away from parents. And I, I didn't want to be Chinese because they were all starving to death. I didn't even want to be Canadian because Canadians kind of wanted to be Americans, but they weren't really Americans. And I'm, I'm not saying it to be offensive to anyone. That is honestly how you, you kind of grew up in the American culture. And that type of analysts like to call it American exceptionalism in a lived way, in a very real way. It's America as the exceptional, as the place which on the one hand is going to be different from all you folks here in the old world, Europe, different from all you folks in Africa, different even from our backyard in Latin America. But while we're different, you all should try to be like us. So in other words, the American exceptional becomes universal. And that filter has been with me all through growing up during the Cold War. And then after we got out of the Cold War and thought everything might be hunky-dory, but it really wasn't. And then post 9-11, and now all the way to the era of Donald Trump. Yeah, that's quite a journey. And maybe we can say or think a little bit more about that. Your your childhood filters seem to have shifted a little bit. You know what? My childhood filter wasn't that different. I was growing up in a different part of the world, uh, rural Northern Ireland. Uh, but I was looking at America. I was looking at it all the time. I was looking at it in magazines and newspapers. I was looking at it on the television. 
uh, I was, you know, playing around at being John Wayne on the playground. You know, there's a way in which those ideas of America were being just performed and played all around the world, uh, you know, at the end of the 20th century. Um, and those were positive views for the most part. I mean, certainly it was for me. But there comes a time, and it's not just with growing up and maturing. It's about, you know, looking more carefully, I think, at the United States from where you stand in the world and giving it more thought. And that's not to be po- not positive about it. It's not to give up on it. Uh, but it's really to, you know, have some tough love and ask some tough questions about it. So you think the American exceptional is kind of indented if you're in Northern Ireland or if you're in Dublin or if you're in some other part of the world? I think it's there, but it can mean different things to different parts of the world. I mean, let's face it, if you were growing up in, let's say, um, parts of the Soviet Union in the late 50s and early 1960s, you good chance you had a pretty positive view of American culture, you know, and uh, it, it seemed to promise ideas of freedom and possibilities of another life that were not there for you. You know, if you're growing up in, um, let's say, I don't know, maybe Iraq or Afghanistan 15 or 20 years ago, you might have a different view on American culture as you may have in other parts of the Middle East today. In other words, your perspective the United States is uh, going to be formed in part by, you know, <laughs> big geopolitical issues as well as those everyday uh, cultural issues. Yeah. But you know what's interesting to me as we are here in 2020 is that just simply because American exceptionalism has been dented or in some senses it's been stripped away uh, doesn't mean that the filters have been stripped away. And in fact, what happens is, is you get an exploitation of those tensions. Let's talk about a Trump filter, in other words. Uh, and that Trump filter, you know, really came home to me during the 2016 election when, um, and we can talk about a lot of reasons why he won unexpectedly, but for me, it came down to four words. And there, those four words that his, his people skillfully mobilized was just make America great again. You know, not just the chance. It was like putting it on the hats, putting it on the t-shirts, putting it on all the merchandise. And that idea of, Make America Great Again, or hashtag MAGA, you know, it did two things. I mean, one is it tapped into that notion of, hey, we're, we're, we're great. We're great. We're exceptional. We should be the best. Uh, but secondly, somebody has stolen that from us. You know, other Americans have stolen that from us, whether they're Democrats or lefties or radicals. And the combination of those two in an extremely abstract way, because the Trump campaign certainly really didn't have anything very concrete in terms of what American greatness would be economically or politically or socially. Well, that was a, a very, some would say a toxic, but it was certainly a powerful potion. But what's interesting to me is that that filter continues. I mean, the number of media interviews that I do that come back to and talk about, yeah, but the, the Trump base, the Trump base, you know, what will the Trump base mean? when he's not convicted in the current impeachment trial, what will the Trump base mean in November when he runs for re-election? Mm. And it's like, that's a filter. There is no Trump base in the sense of a party, in the sense of a movement that's out there. It's this idea that I'm sure Donald Trump would claim 99% of Americans, like all except the radicals, but that there's a percentage of Americans who are so deeply intense with Trump that it becomes like this reality, this core of America. And of course, it's not. It's manufactured, whatever the Trump base is, because people support Donald Trump for different reasons. Some of them will support him in perpetuity. Others may not. But it becomes America's, it becomes American exceptionalism defined as Trump exceptionalism in this Wizard of Oz moment, that until you remove the filter, until you pull back the curtain, then you don't actually see where the wizard is. 
and you don't actually get to what the reality of the yellow brick road might be or might not be. Yeah, that's a good way of coming back to the idea of filters and uh, you know the idea that there's a reality there to be to be revealed. Sometimes in my worst nightmares, I think maybe there's no reality there to be revealed. All we're left with are these fictions and these myths and these things that were being sold, and that Donald Trump has really become the master of that. Please tell me I'm too cynical and that there's something real there that we can all get hold of and come together on. You're too cynical. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I say this as someone who is a cynic himself, but it's like, I'll come back to this, which is, and this is true, and I only think of America, but by stripping the filter back from America, we do actually discuss ourselves as well. And that is at the end of the day, our today experiences are in our communities, right? And we have communities. Some of them are villages. Some of them are towns, some are cities. Some of them are centered on the church. Some of them are centered on schools. You can, your listeners will be thinking right now, this is where I make my connections on a day-to-day basis. And those connections are really powerful. Those connections are really powerful because they can lead to a politics which is of dialogue rather than division. They can lead to a politics which is of common interest rather than competition. They can lead to a a politics which is being inclusive rather than us versus them. But what happens on a day-to-day basis, whether we're talking about our schools, whether we're talking about our hospitals, whether we're talking about immigration, And we'll bring this back to America. The reality in America is you get this polarization, which is because there are those who will feed upon division, who will try to profit upon division, and who will try to exploit division. Now, sometimes they feed upon it to the extent that they believe it. It becomes entrenched. But by and large, if you were to bring this back down to what people really, really want on a day-to-day basis, you would find these common areas. They want their kids to have a better life than they had. They want a decent education. They want to have jobs that they can hold and not risk losing. They want to be able to get treated if they're ill. They want to be able to retire at some point and not feel that they'll be in poverty. They'll want to breathe air and have clean water, even if you've got climate change deniers like Donald Trump amongst their midst. And the more that you bring the conversation back down to that and that you emphasize a decency rather than a division, that's a starting point. Can it be done? All I would say is is that while everyone has gone back in 2020 and going Trump, 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 in November of 2018 in the midterm elections, which of course, although they're on a national basis, quite often these are local elections. These are for state legislatures as well as national, as well as for Congress that you did see a change, not just in the sense that the Democrats won a large number of seats in the House and took control of that body, but that you saw a focus on issues in that campaign and a focus on dialogue in that campaign, which at least for that window in November 2018, did offer a vision of a political way forward, which is just simply not dominated by hashtag Make America Great Again. Yeah, I, I I like the I like the optimism. I'm I'm signing up for it. I really am. But I'm also very wary of the hashtag side of that. That is to say that the 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 new media, the social media, uh, has clearly not led to, but it's magnified these divisions that you're talking about. And whatever one thinks of, of Donald Trump as a as a political leader, uh, he is um, a tremendous media manipulator. Yeah, he is a manipulator. But let's talk about why. America unfiltered, and why that's a necessity precisely to deal with that type of manipulation. And that is, we know that Donald Trump has a very loose relationship with the truth. 
uh, I think the Washington Post gave an update uh, this week in terms of the number of lies that Trump has told. Lies, not mistakes, not misinformation, lies. And it's now in the tens of thousands. I you know, need to check my own self in terms of statistics. But my recollection is it's more than 30,000. Now, we need to have a space where we remove the filter of the lie and say, well, no, in fact, this is the reality of what you're talking about. And that would be, for example, just to give you a, a current example, is that at Davos, the World Economic Forum this week, Donald Trump, in a rather sedate way, because he was reading off the script, but he still said that the danger to the world was those who spread hoaxes about the environment, uh, that talked about overpopulation killing millions in the 1980s, and that talked about dramatic disasters that would overwhelm the world in the 1990s. And what he was doing, when you strip that filter back, is he was saying that those people who are scientifically studying climate change, producing reports on climate change, discussing with us what needs to be done about climate change, are liars. That's what he was saying. He was lying about, in fact, the reality of those who want to deal with the climate change issue by turning the lie against them. You take the filter off of that. And it's not just Trump you take the filter off of. Let us be very honest here. That is, when you have media outlets, they do not necessarily inform us. They do not necessarily speak truth to power. In this 21st century world, not only of new media, but of older media, we have to get empowered to be able to take the filter off. So guess what? Fox News, by and large, is not news. Fox News, by and large, is Fox TV, which is polemic, which is there to make assertions which may or may not have any type of support. And when you have a host like a Tucker Carlson, like a Sean Hannity, at the very start, you need to identify what they are, which is they are polemicists. They're demagogues in the tradition of a Father Coughlin of the 1930s. And then we can discuss what they say with the filter removed. Will we be accused of being leftist? Well, yeah, we'll be accused of that, even though I don't actually identify as leftist. But that, in fact, I think is the challenge that we take on Mm. when we deal with America. And by the way, it is not just simply taking on those who might be on the right. There are some of those who are, quote, on the left of American politics who have their own filters, and those need to be stripped back as well. I completely agree. I, I, I think filters are not the preserve of one political party. And um, that's why I think we'll have to give close attention to all kinds of ideological filters that are telling us one thing or another about the United States. That includes really the big national filter itself. And what I mean about that is that um, the United States often seems like a bubble to itself. Uh, if you go to the US and you watch and listen to news media there, there's not a lot of international news. It's very nation-centric and very nation-centered. So again, with America Unfiltered, we're looking at the United States from the outside. Uh, we're doing that with an interest in what's happening there, but we're also interested in what it means to have that outside perspective and also to look at what America's doing in other parts of the world and report on that. Americans are not uh, hearing as much about that or seeing as much in that realm as they have before. So, Scott, just as we move to wrap up, uh, looking through to 2020, uh, you know, there's a good matter for, for seeing clearly 2020. How would you look at 2020 Unfiltered? What would you point us toward just briefly in closing? Well, I think the narrative, you know, initially is set out because we will have the impeachment trial of Donald Trump. Uh, The Republicans would like to wrap this up by the end of January. It is almost certain that it will end in in his not being convicted of the charges of abuse of power and destruction of Congress. But of course, the wider question will be, will we actually get the evidence? Will we get the documents and the witnesses or will, in fact, 
Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and Republican senators bury that evidence. The way that they buried the Trump-Russia report, which actually documented a great deal of evidence of Trump's possible crimes, such as obstruction of justice and indeed his cooperation with Russia in the 2016 campaign. Uh, If they do bury it or if they don't successfully bury it and some of the evidence does continue, it will feed into his attempt to win a second term in office, another four years, as well as, we mustn't forget, the elections for a third of the Senate and for all of the House. That will determine, I think, the immediate future of American politics. It will be important, however, not to look at this as just a horse race, but both for the sake of that election and also for the sake of what really matters, because one day Donald Trump will be gone, is those key issues um, that are there, that have been there well before 2020. There is the issue of the economy. Uh, Donald Trump this week claimed credit for creating 7 million jobs, for the stock market rising by 50%, for the American economy being generally resurgent. All of that was a deception in the sense that the American economy has been growing since the Great Recession of 2009, but it has been slowing down, in part because of Donald Trump's trade war. Whether or not it slows down, it stagnates before or after the November election could affect his political fortunes, but it will be slowing down, and it's something that will have to be confronted because that will feed into an issue like healthcare, which is an issue which affects each and every American. You cannot put healthcare to the side as an issue because people get sick. They need to know that they will be able to be provided for if they or their relatives are ill. And that means the question of public versus private provision uh, will continue. We will have the issue of immigration, which will persist because you will have the filter, the mythology of the wall, which will never be built with Mexico. But you will then have the reality of the indefinite detention of thousands of uh, undocumented migrants, of the continued separation of children from families. What do you do about that in not only the short term, but in a system which can last, which can be fair, which can be just? And the issue of climate change, because the issue of climate change, which should affect every American, does affect every American, but which should be recognized as affecting every American. You've got to clear away the brush of climate change deniers, including uh, Donald Trump himself. And of course, you have to do that not only for the sake of America, because America unfiltered means we have to recognize that issues no longer stop at American borders. You take that filter of the border away, they affect all of us. Scott Lucas is Professor of International Politics and American Studies at the University of Birmingham and the editor of EAWorldview.com. And that was the first episode of America Unfiltered a new podcast from the University College Dublin's Clinton Institute, taking a fresh, new look at American politics, foreign policy, and media. You can subscribe to our podcast on all your favorite podcast platforms, and please head over to ucdclinton.ie to subscribe to our newsletter to keep up to date on what we get up to at the Clinton Institute and to read the latest commentary from our experts on happenings across the Atlantic. That's all from now. I'm Liam Kennedy. Goodbye from Dublin. (music) 